0: I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Bryn Nelson, is a PhD microbiologist who changed course to become an award-winning science journalist. In addition to several years as a staff writer at Newsday, focusing on genetics, stem cell research, evolution, ecology, and conservation, he has written for dozens of other news outlets as well, including the New York Times, Nature, and the British Medical Journal, among others. His writing has garnered nearly a dozen awards for pieces on health, medicine, and ecology. His recently published book, Flush, The Remarkable Science of an Unlikely Treasure, is the subject of today's interview. So Bryn, welcome to Delving In.
1: Thank you so much, Stuart. Thanks for having me.
0: Okay, so first I have to warn my listeners that we'll be talking about a truly wasteful subject. But when we're through digesting the subject, we may change our minds about that and recognize that it all depends on the treatment. Okay, listeners, you haven't figured it out yet. If, in case you haven't, here's the scoop. We're going to talk about bio-waste, our own. If that sounds unappetizing to you, you're not alone. It's safe to say, however, that there's too much to learn here to just throw it away.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you for that.
0: So to start off with uh, Bryn, uh, how did you become so interested in this taboo topic that you wrote a book about it?
1: Well, I'm a microbiologist uh, by training, so I've always been interested in uh, microbes including the, uh, the, micro, the gut microbiome. And um, about eight years ago, I wrote a piece for a British magazine called Mosaic on uh, fecal transplants. And for listeners who don't know what that is, a fecal transplant is a medical procedure Uh, for an infection called C. diff, uh, which is a hospital acquired infection, and it infects the gastrointestinal tract and it can make people incredibly sick. And a fecal transplant is essentially reseeding your inner garden with someone's healthy microbes. And poop just happens to be the container in which uh, the, the, the microbes are delivered. And it may sound gross, but actually uh, fecal transplants are life-saving and they are incredibly important. And in fact, uh, in studies uh, suggest that they have uh, beaten antibiotics as, as a cure. So people were literally dying and would have these transplants and then would be cured. So I was incredibly fascinated with this remedy that was laughed at, was thought to be disgusting, and people were desperate in resorting to these uh, do-it-yourself do it transplants. And now it's solidly within mainstream uh, medicine. And in fact, there are now dozens of clinical trials trying to expand its use. So that kind of got me started. I was also really interested in uh, the psychology of disgust, what, what makes people disgusted about certain things. Poop, of course, is high on, on people's list. And also, uh, I really became interested in what we can do with something that is pretty lowly, is pretty humble. Uh, we do it every day. Uh, and it turns out that it's uh, very abundant and very r- versatile, and there are some p- surprising uses for it. Yeah. So, so yeah. So I guess in, in keeping with the theme of your show, I really wanted to uh, to delve into the subject and uh, to, and <laughs> see and see what I could learn.
0: Right. And, and and you don't have to go into detail here, but you do spend some pages at the beginning talking about your fascination with your own productions, the consistency, the frequency, the timing, how long it took for uh, something to go through all the way through. Uh, It it seems like it's a topic that can become uh, kind of addictive.
1: (laughs) For me, what I wanted to do was to train myself to be more observant. Uh, Because uh, if you think about it, it, basically the, the idea is that Whatever we ingest, whatever goes through us, is reflected in what comes out of us. Whether that's food, whether that's antibiotics, whether that is, you know, other things that we're exposed to in the environment, and your body is is actually very good at uh, giving you signals that there might be something wrong. And uh, a lot of times we we sort of ignore that at our own peril. And so, yeah, I kind of experimented uh, on myself a little bit. You know, I I took some supplements. I took some fiber pills. I had my microbiome sequenced. um, And I had uh, basically uh, poop tracking apps (laughs) that helped me. And and it's basically just a way of understanding what's normal and what's natural for your body so that you better understand when things, things are out of whack.
0: And of course, all of us are at, at some time or rather fascinated or at least highly attentive uh, to our poop, uh, certainly with our own children when they're, when they're young. And I can remember my own son who's now 31, but when he was doing toilet training years and years ago, that we were you know, trying to be very encouraging when he was on the little potty and we, after he did it, he, we would say, that's a really respectable poop. <laughs> and, and, and he went around running around the house and speckable poop, speckable poop. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, while he was on the potty, he was reading the book that you referred to in, in, in your book, uh, Everyone Poops by uh, Tara Gomi. And so it was just sort of hilarious watching him, you know, having his bathroom material while he was you know trying to uh, to do what he needed to do just to give the audience just a, a flavor of that book it, it starts out by saying an elephant makes a big poop and a mouse makes a little poop and a one one hump camel makes a one hump poop and a two hump camel makes a two hump poop just kidding
1: <laughs> i mean poop is poop is funny right i mean and and i think for me it was a quirky topic but it was also a way in to have some of these more serious discussions
0: yeah and I think we'll get into a, a more than one subtopic here. I mean, your, your book covers a lot of ground, but first, before you do that, I just wanted to share a, a Yiddish curse. Uh, the Yiddish language is known for off color and kind of n- not, not very politically correct necessarily, but also um, kind of gross humor sometimes. And so there's a Yiddish curse that says, "May you have to go to the bathroom all the time or not at all.") <laughs>
1: yes <laughs> they under they understood the Bristol stool scale very well then <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah so lo, so let's let's uh, stay just a bit longer on this microbiome sure. uh, fecal transplant I, I did read about that in the New York Times years ago uh, a biologist couldn't get anyone to do it for him because it was before the I guess the controlled trials and so he did it for himself mm-hmm. and he, took heavy-duty antibiotics to try to clear his system. And, and I imagine it doesn't absolutely clear the system, but it, it reduces the microbiome to minimal levels. Right. And then he had a sample from his friend who had impeccable gut health yes. and impeccable respectable poops. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, and uh, his doctors and friends all told him not to do it. And of course, I should probably tell our listeners not to do it without supervision yes. <laughs> because and we should talk about the dangers, too. Absolutely. But in his case, it, he was a biologist and he did it very carefully and he looked under a microscope at the species of bacteria and so on. And, and it was very effective yeah. for him. Um, so what, what are the dangers? And it sounds so promising, but what, what are the dangers?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. That's a great point. And, and I should yeah, uh, reiterate your, uh, your caution that this is not something that uh, people should try at home. You know, This is now, fortunately, something that is solidly within mainstream science. And there are options. And there are um, actually uh, stool banks, uh, believe it or not, where you can get pre-screened donations. And, and the reason for caution is that clearly poop can cause disease. We know that. You know, if it's not handled correctly, it can be uh, very dangerous. And also there are uh, potential long-term consequences. So so among the things that uh, donors are screened for, are uh, susceptibility to diabetes, susceptibility to metabolic disorders, things like that. Because as we know more about the microbiome, we're realizing how much of an impact it has on other parts of the body. And so what you don't want to have happen is you're essentially reseeding your own intestinal tract with someone else's healthy microbiome but we don't know entirely what the microbiome does there are a lot of constituents a lot of bacterial species we still have very little idea what they do and so i think the the sense is that we need to be very cautious and that, yes, this can be incredibly life-saving, but you don't want to inadvertently create uh, a lot of other uh, long-term consequences. You know? And certainly you wanna make sure that wh- uh, whoever is, is donating doesn't have some sort of infection of their own right? Because then they, they would just pass that on to you. So, so yeah, so those are some of the dangers, you know, fortunately, there isn't a need to, to do it at home. Um, this can be done in, uh, you know, most uh, medical centers around the U S uh, and, and there are active trials to try and uh, further refine uh, the delivery process.
0: So uh, a couple of points. One is that uh, my understanding is that there are more bacterial cells in a human body than human cells. Uh, some say a lot more, some say somewhat more. Uh, so that's really interesting that we're mostly non-human in terms of numbers of cells. Yes. And the, and the other thing to keep in mind is that bacteria is kind of like a chemical factory. And it, it takes in chemical components and it, it emits or egests other components. Uh, and, and your book talks about how some scientists are trying to, I guess, for in order to create drugs that would just introduce the products the chemical products rather than the bacteria itself and of course then that would be safer as well as patentable
1: right no, absolutely. So, so we used to think that uh, the ratio of bacterial cells to human cells was 10 to 1. Now it's probably closer to 1 to 1, um, but if then you include uh, viruses and other microbes, we're still outnumbered. So yeah, so if you talk about us, we're actually this sort of commensal organism that's probably more microbial cells than human cells. And to your point, the really exciting thing about this field is that microbes produce a wide variety of of chemical compounds and uh, proteins. And that's kind of the business end of their activity in our gut, right? So you may have multiple different types of microbes that are all producing uh, similar types of proteins that may act together to achieve certain things. So for instance, we know that microbes help us synthesize vitamins. They help digest our food, and in particular, uh, plant fibers. They can help train the immune system to distinguish friend from foe. So ultimately, what you care about is what are these products and how are they being produced under what circumstances and how do they interact in ways that can either lead to disease or lead to health, more of a balance in our gut. And that's, you know, ultimately, it's more of this like ecological approach of balance. And and that's something that I think it's taken uh, the medical community a while to kind of come to grips with, it's not just like one microbe, one disease, but more this sense of your body's out of balance, and it makes it more susceptible to things that, you know, you would be less at risk for if everything was working together, you know, as as this community inside of you.
0: Yeah, so it's a kind of inner ecosystem. Exactly in a sense, an invisible inner ecosystem that's just teeming with life. Just not the kind of life that we're used to thinking of as life.
1: Yes, absolutely. But yeah, predators and prey. I mean, you've got the viruses that will prey on some of the the microbes. So, I mean, it really is like this little, you know, jungle in miniature with important species and less important species. And it's, I mean, it's absolutely fascinating.
0: So let me just uh, quote a little paragraph from your book about FMT's fecal microbiota transplants. FMTs are nothing more than an attempt to reseed an intestinal tract with an approximation of its normal inhabitants, often after antibiotics have killed off the native flora that might have kept invasive species at bay. Think of it like densely planting a plot of land so that weeds have little room to grow. So basically, you're, you're wanting the, the good, quote unquote, healthy bacteria, or healthy for you, to outcompete the unhealthy bacteria.
1: That's right. Yes. And this is a a mechanism that is something that works really well for Clostridioides difficile. This is the bacterial infection C. diff, you know, that we've been talking about. It may not necessarily be that simple when you're talking about some other diseases like Crohn's disease or colitis, you know, other diseases of the gut, other autoimmune diseases. There may be a more the complicated uh, mechanism that's required but for basically pushing out invasive microbes it really is like trying to keep these weeds at bay and so yeah so that's the that's the analogy that i like to use it really is like planting this garden you know within you
0: so how are we doing as a, in the medical world with getting over the yuck factor <laughs>
1: The, the fecal transplants really opened a lot of eyes. And I think people were really surprised at how effective it was. I don't think that that was something that the medical community necessarily saw coming. You know, when, when you had this sort of groundbreaking controlled trial, and, and basically, it was looking at the effectiveness of these uh, fecal transplants versus uh, the antibiotic of choice, which is vancomycin at the time. And it, it wasn't even close. You know, fecal transplants just, just clobbered uh, vancomycin in terms of their effectiveness in curing patients. And these were patients who had recurrent infections. So not just one, but multiple infections. And in fact, they actually stopped the trial early because they thought it would have been Unethical to continue giving some of them antibiotics when they knew at that point that these fecal transplants were so much more effective. So they essentially stopped and then gave all of them, you know, these fecal transplants. So I think that was really kind of a sea change. I think there have been other studies that have looked at that as well. But you, you're you're, you're, t- you're looking at like an 85 to 90 percent cure rate in in a lot of these patients, which is you know which is phenomenal in in medicine. So I think. The proof there really helped people kind of get beyond this, this this yuck factor. You know, of course, now it's about how do we refine the delivery and maybe make it a little bit less gross. <laughs> and that's kind of the, uh, the, what the what the field is working on now.
0: The writer of the article for the New York Times, the, the biologist who did his own, I mean, he created capsules that he swallowed. And that, that's definitely a yuck factor there. But apparently, you know, you can make really well-sealed capsules.
1: Typically, they're triple triple-coated capsules uh, to make sure that your uh, your cargo reaches its destination.
0: <laughs> yeah, and and you mentioned about multiple infections. I, I presume what that means is that the the C diff is is beaten back by the antibiotic, but not completely. And so, once you've done the course of antibiotic, then that little remaining amount of of, of bacteria resumes its activity and a if the uh, combination of flora and your gut is, is favorable to that infectious kind, it'll just take over again. That's
1: right, that's right. Yeah, a lot of times what you're doing is you're killing off some of the other microbes that may keep it at bay. And if it loses its uh, susceptibility to the antibiotic, you know, essentially what you're doing is allowing it to come back and maybe some of the other microbes that would normally be in your gut not to come back, and you can inadvertently make, make the problem worse.
0: Yeah, the other thing that was really uh, fascinating to me is, is that you can find greater uh, microbiome diversity in among indigenous peoples who haven't been exposed to things like antibiotics and pesticides and, and all kinds of interventions. Uh, and the other thing I wanted to mention is that I think Western medicine pre- prefers silver bullets to more ecological Cures to almost anything. And so this, this is much more complicated than just finding a a pill that wipes out the offender.
1: Yes, absolutely. And, and I think this has, has maybe helped lead this reevaluation of Western medicine and, you know, away from this kind of silver bullet approach that you, that you mentioned, because you know as we're looking at microbial diversity around the world and we know that in the western western countries where we have more exposure to antibiotics where we eat less fiber in our diets we live more sedentary lifestyles the diversity of microbes in our gut is decreasing and if you go to uh, some other cultures, indigenous people on in the Amazon, for example, you, found, you find a much higher gut diversity. And so the idea is that some of the function of our gut is disappearing or at least threatened. And so uh, there's been concern about, you know what are we actually losing? If you think of this as kind of this invisible visible organ within us, you know, this, this, this kind of teeming mass that, that has co-evolved with us over uh, millions of years, what does that mean to suddenly, in a, in a fairly short period of time, uh, lose some of that function? And then how do we potentially get some of that function back?
0: Let's shift gears just a little bit now and, and talk about poop as a gold mine for the detection of disease diet, drug use, and contaminants, both individually and collectively.
1: One of the really fascinating things um, about surveillance uh, of, of our poop is the potential for wastewater epidemiology, as the field is known, to give us advance warning of disease. And we saw that most clearly with COVID in that communities were looking literally to the sewers to detect the virus RNA. And in some cases that detection occurred days and even you know a week or two before the first confirmed case in that community. So potentially what that does is it gives you a head start, gives you an advance warning that the virus is is, is on its way, uh, you know, or, or is already in your community. It can also give you a sense of the different variants of the virus because we know that throughout the course of the pandemic, we've had shifting variants that have been more or less prevalent. And so that gives you a a sense of how these variants are spreading both across the country and across the world. And so that gives you a chance for uh, public health interventions. And what was really fascinating to me is when I was researching this, understanding the, uh, the history of this and the fact that wastewater epidemiology and surveillance of a community's waste in the sewers really dates back to the 1930s with polio. And the first detection of polio in the US in, in wastewater was actually achieved in 1939 in uh, several cities in the US, and then again in uh, Stockholm, Sweden, very shortly thereafter. And that really uh, led to the sort of blossoming of this field as a way to really give us an early sense of what's going on. By extension, that same kind of surveillance is useful not only for antibiotic resistance, for viruses, for microbes, you can also do uh, drug detection. So for some communities that have been hit really hard by the opioid epidemic, you can uh, detect higher or lower opioid concentrations in the sewers. And people have used that to try and direct public health resources towards stemming that pandemic, uh, you know, because that's also that epidemic, because that's also been been a huge and growing problem in the
0: US. Yeah, you cited a really uh, impressive example of uh, ian pepper's work with college dorms who was able to actually i guess examine the waste stream of of each dorm separately and was able to detect two non-symptomatic cases and prevent a whole bunch of infections
1: that's right that was at the university of arizona and uh, what they did was uh, separate out each building on campus each dorm based on mapping of the you know the on-campus sewer system and if you know where the outtake pipe is and you sample there you know that everything that you're sampling is coming from that specific building and nowhere else on campus and so what you're able to do is um, able to do wastewater epidemiology at the level of individual buildings uh, not just a city or a neighborhood and what they were able to do is actually, uh, in multiple cases, uh, detect these silent outbreaks where some of the students were asymptomatic, and so the the lighting up of a building basically after these this this wastewater epidemiology would then prompt uh, testing of the students within that dorm. But what that allowed them to do was kind of save the resources, because you don't have to then test everyone on campus. You're testing specifically from, from the buildings where you have received the signal. And in that way, they estimate that they were able to avert many outbreaks on campus.
0: So presumably with the next and possibly more serious, uh, even more serious epidemic, be able to use such methods if the political will is there.
1: That's right. And I think what's important is uh, having the infrastructure to do that. You know, we've built up some of the infrastructure now, Um, the CDC, has a, a system in place where they're trying to connect different uh, wastewater treatment plants as kind of the focal points for this, this surveillance system. The problem is that when we have a pandemic, when we have an emergency, there tends to be a lot of focus and attention. When we think that the threat has passed, then we kind of lose focus, and I think the, the, the lesson is that there are going to be more diseases that we're going to have to confront. And we don't want to be flying blind uh, in the face of those threats. So the, the, the important thing is that we're not flying blind in the face of these future threats. And I think when, when the threat is there in front of us, we tend to take, pay attention to it and uh, have the funding in place to manage it. When we don't have that threat front and center, that's when we have the, uh, the, the, the loss of the funding. And so I think the, the lesson here is that we need to have this infrastructure for the long haul so that we're able to address some of these threats when they come in the future.
0: Let's shift now to talking about uh, human waste as a source of energy. That's another big section of your book. Biogas, home digesters, and fuel briquettes or biosolids, so a variety of different approaches. And I guess part of the impetus is, of course, to reduce global warming to find uh, carbon neutral sources of energy, but also human waste it is also a problem ecologically, particularly when it gets dumped into waterways and things of that sort. I was gratified to see that you mentioned uh, Newtown Creek in your book. I actually had to cross Newtown Creek every morning to go to high school. So I went to Stuyvesant High School, but I lived in Queens. I had to cross, the, I think, the Pulaski or Kosciuszko Bridge or something like that. And sometimes it'd be late because the drawbridge had opened up over the Newtown Creek. And, and at that time, it was you know pea soup green. It was it was considered the most disgusting body of water in, in New York.
1: That's right. And probably in the U.S., the Newtown Creek is a fascinating example of what's possible in kind of shifting our poop from places where it shouldn't go and reusing it in ways that actually help heal the environment and help solve some of our future problems such as uh, global warming. Newtown Creek is, is basically uh, a dividing point between part of Brooklyn and Queens. And uh, it has been an industrial industrial canal for many years. Um, you know, it used to be a, a natural waterway. It's now almost entirely lined with, you know, with concrete. And what has happened is that in New York City, uh, the combined sewer system is such that when you have uh, rain, the sewer gets overwhelmed very quickly. And to avoid, basically, sewage running in the streets, that uh, combined sewer system has to be flushed out into the waterways. Uh, so by necessity, you, you basically have raw sewage that's going into these canals, even now in, in 2022. This has been a a huge problem and and people have looked at ways to try and resolve it. But one of the ways that I think is really interesting and creative is to try and figure out how to bring back more permeable surfaces in New York City so that they can help sop up some of this extra stormwater so you don't have this kind of flushing into the waterways. And uh, one of the ways that you can do that is by building more green roofs. And so uh, I visited Green Roof when I was there in New York and in Brooklyn, and uh, it's right next to one of the big wastewater treatment plants there. But what's exciting about it is that you're basically creating wildlife habitat for bees and birds and butterflies. It's basically a pretty garden. But it also has an ability to sop up a lot of water that would otherwise spill onto the streets go into the sewers, overwhelm the sewers and then spill out into Newtown Creek and other bodies of water. So it's basically this green infrastructure which is this new focus of trying to lessen some of our impacts on nature. That's one of the cool things that's happening. You know, one of the other really interesting things, you know, both at the the wastewater treatment plant there and other other places is basically converting some of our waste into biogas. And biogas is really exciting because it's a renewable form of gas. So it's, it's essentially methane, which we produce naturally, many of us. And what you're doing is you're recreating the conditions of that methane production within these giant digesting vats. And it's microbes. It's uh, specifically uh, archaea microbes as well as bacteria. And as a byproduct of their metabolism, they are releasing this gas, which we can then reuse. And it's a renewable source of energy. It's coming from us. And so it's a really it's a, you know another one of the many examples of of thinking creatively about how do we turn this problem. Uh, into a solution.
0: And I think you, you mentioned that if we used biogas uh, uh, ex- extensively, it could, it could reduce uh, gas emissions by an impressive 10 to 13 uh, percent greenhouse gas emissions. So it's not a trivial thing. It's, it's a sizable component of global warming.
1: That's right. The caveat on that number is that that would include um, not only just our uh, bodily uh, uh, waste or poop, but also kind of other sources of organic waste. You know, the, the potential is that we're doing uh, very little to reuse our waste. So if you talk about tree and yard waste, if you talk about farm waste, if you talk about food waste and, and certainly, uh, you know, poop and wastewater, The combined potential is really enormous uh, if we think about how we can get the the biggest bang for the buck out of that. And unfortunately, what's happening is a lot of that is just being pushed into landfills where it is the least useful. And it's creating problems of its own there, because then you have you know, leaching of, of some of the nutrients and contaminants into groundwater. You have some of the methane escaping into the atmosphere. So, so this is really a, I think, a rethinking of how do we use this very abundant natural resource right, as a way to, to, to come up with these solutions that then we can use for other sources of waste to further increase the potential?
0: Yeah, so probably the, um, the most ecological use of, of waste, whether it's human or otherwise, is to spread it around uh, soil and make fertilize. But of course, that's much, it's very unwieldy in most cases. But the, the next best thing is that we could at least use it for energy and, and reduce global warming thereby and, and, ha- and also reduce the need for as much uh, waste disposal which, 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 as you say, is so polluting with um, when it goes into riverways, especially, and it creates dead zones and uh, like in the Gulf of Mexico and so on.
1: Right, right. No, absolutely. And I think um, one component of, of using biosolids as fertilizer, and we can talk, you know, more about that. With the technology that we have now, we have an ability to, to make it safer than it was in, in, in past centuries. You know, this is something, of course, that people have been doing for thousands of years, you know, uh, whether it's uh, human manure or livestock manure or you know, uh, bird guano. This has been a very, very valuable agricultural tool throughout history. And, you know, we kind of got away from that for, for a while, and there are a number of reasons for that. I think maybe disgust was part of that. Also, the fear of disease. But we have the tools now to, to do this much more safely, you know, as long as we're doing uh, the proper testing and the proper regulations. I think with a lot of uh, farmland and other spaces, this has become a very valuable a soil amendment and you know it really has some uh, remarkable potential to help increase the fertility of soils because we know that soil fertility is decreasing we've got you know topsoil loss so yet again this can be another uh, really important tool of helping us sort of reclaim some of that agricultural productivity that we've lost
0: yeah, I want to bring in one more example of uh, recycling of of our waste products. This is a really disgusting one, so I can't avoid okay. it. Okay. <laughs> and 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 that's turning waste into food. Not not food for us because that's probably beyond what most people could tolerate, but it turns out that, you know, there are poop-loving uh, poop-loving larvae of I guess of houseflies basically, and they will turn the poop into proteins. Yes. yes. You know, the, the larvae love them, and you know, and then the, uh, there's a company called Sanergy, I guess, which is, or Sanergy, it combines energy with saneness, uh, with sanity. And they, they harvest the larvae, pasteurize it, and they sell it to millers to, to grind into protein packed feed for farmed fish, poultry, and pigs, as well as pets like dogs and birds. And that sounds really disgusting, because not only do you have the poop, but you have house fly larvae, which are. I'll see maggots, basically.
1: I love this example. Uh, this is a company, Sanergy, um, as you said. Uh, it's actually a combination of, uh, of sanitation and, and energy, but also Sanity, I think, is, is, is probably another good choice for that. It is based in Kenya. And uh, there were other examples in other countries, but uh, this particular uh, company is doing some fantastic things. And basically the, the main problem that they were trying to solve was to increase the sanitation in uh, parts of the cities where there's not good access, there's not a sewer infrastructure. And so the problem was how do you remove the waste in a way that is sanitary and it is going to help prevent the spread of disease uh, because that was a big concern among uh, the residents of of these communities. And so what they determined was through their system that not only could they use uh, container-based sanitation, uh, which is a growing uh, concept in in many parts of the world where you're you're basically uh, using some form of container and you are extracting the waste then the question is well what do you do with it how do you reuse it and they came up with this very clever solution there are uh black soldier flies uh is the name of a fly and the larva are voracious eaters and they happen to love poop they also can uh concentrate uh, quite a bit of, of protein and carbohydrates as they feed so what they're essentially doing is breaking down this organic matter into harmless organic matter and concentrating protein and carbohydrates within their bodies they can be harvested and then basically ground up as this meal for fish for livestock for pets as you said and what that's doing is it's also replacing other sources of protein that aren't sustainable so for example in in kenya one of the main sources of protein had been uh, fish in a particular lake but there was overfishing of those fish in that lake, and so there was a shortage, meaning that a lot of people in the agricultural se- sector had to then import uh, these, these, this protein feed. So basically what you're doing is you're providing a more sustainable source of this protein uh, that you can mix into feed for livestocks. And it's in the form of these larvae, which is you know more akin to what what they would be eating. So you're it's not like you're feeding poop to the animals. You're using the poop as the food for the food of the animals. Um, so it's one step removed. It's a it's a very clever. And then and in addition to this, they can use the residue from these larva and they can make a fertilizer out of it. So they're basically, you know, reusing everything they possibly can in this process for different products. In so doing, they're solving the sanitation problem. So it's it's really this like three or four for one solution.
0: So with our last segment, let's talk about water, the reclaiming of water. Just to start us off, I want to quote from a quote in your book of Charles Fishman, the author of The Big Thirst. He explained that all the water on Earth, the water in your Evian bottle, the water in your glass of water, the water you use to boil a pot of spaghetti, all that water is 4.3 or 4.4 billion years old. No water has been created on Earth. No water has been destroyed on Earth. And what that means is the whole debate about reusing wastewater is kind of silly because all the water we've got right now has been used over and over again every drink of water you take, every pot of coffee you make is dinosaur pee, because it's all been through the kidneys of Tyrannosaurus rex or an Apatosaurus many, many times, because all the water we have is all the water we will ever have.
1: Yeah, that helps helps put this into uh, perspective of what it means to actually recycle water. And I think that Kind of bit of knowledge, you know, may help some people get past the the disgust factor, uh, you know, which is a very strong emotional, you know, response. And uh, you know, disgust is an emotion that has been designed uh, has has evolved with us to to help protect us uh, from from pathogens. You know, sometimes it does more harm than good. And I think kind of understanding the way that the water cycle works. And I think also kind of understanding the ways that we have to basically strip water back to its essence, which is, you know, H2O, may help people kind of get past this kind of yuck. No, I don't want to, I don't want to do that. You know, and, and now, particularly in the US West, we know that drought has reached the point where. Many of our available water sources are disappearing, so we are going to have to turn to some of these alternative sources of water that we have in abundance, so we just didn't really think about them.
0: Meaning wastewater.
1: Meaning wastewater, yes, among other sources of water, yes, but wastewater definitely is a, is a big untapped source. And there are uh, several large projects in the U.S. that are are doing this. Uh, Orange County uh, Groundwater Replenishment System is now the largest in the world and is basically turning the wastewater from Orange County. That water is treated, then it is pumped to a plant. It goes through a four-step process. By the end of that process, you have water that is so pure it's, dis- it's distilled water that in order to make it drinking water, you actually have to add back some salts or some magnesium, some minerals, because otherwise, if we drank a lot of it, it would actually start kind of leaching out some of our, our minerals in our body. You know, it, it is at that point, it's essentially distilled water. Um, so it's very pure.
0: Yeah, you, you quote Bill Gates's reaction to drinking water at one of these treatment plants you know it goes sludge in and, and I think five minutes later pure water comes out and he said it's water <laughs> yes 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 <laughs> he tasted he tasted yeah. it he tasted yes. it and said it's yes. water
1: yes and I have as well I mean and 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 that particular project is is called the omniprocessor and the omniprocessor was kind of an amazing technology where it's a basically a portable system. Uh, where you're partially replacing a uh, a wastewater treatment system. Not completely, but partially. But you have basically partially dried waste, uh, feces that come in. And it uses basically an update on uh, steam technology. And what you are left with is ash and clean water that's an exciting approach because that has the ability to be installed in places that don't have a lot of existing uh, infrastructure. Uh, So the problem is, okay, in, in, in places where you don't have a dedicated sewer system, how do you convert this waste safely? And so this is one example of that. So there, there are many different ways that you can do it, but I think what's exciting is that you know, we've, we've figured out how to do this in, in a lot of places around the world. And I think now the emphasis has to be also bringing in some of the social scientists, the psychologists, the sociologists, do the educational part so that people understand why this is necessary and can be assured that this is safe for them. I think that's the other element that we really need to, to to get across.
0: Right. So there are a number of different motives to kind of harness or to get either harness on one hand or to get past on the other hand. One, of course, is disgust. Another one is convenience. If the flush toilet is so darn convenient and to, to, to replace that with something that seems less so. But as you say in your book, I mean, these no flush toilets that just uh, suck in the, the waste instead, and you know, the, they're, they're still sanitary. Yes. I think there's a fear that it won't be, but you know, there's so much convenience. Then also, the, there's the other factor of of um, habit. People just expect things to be a certain way. And you know, back in the old days when we had outhouses, of course, you know, transferring the waste to some to some kind of compost heap was it was much simpler. Right, you know, you you didn't expect it to just be whooshed away and we'll forget all about it.
1: Yeah, I think one of the exciting things that's happening now is showcasing some of these buildings of the future where composting toilets, for example, are integrated into the building as part of this kind of forward looking vision of a sustainable building. So here in Seattle, for instance, we have the Bullitt Center. And, you know, until recently they had this very advanced composting toilet system, six-story building. And I remember when it first opened, everyone wanted to go to the bathroom (laughs) to take a look because they were all expecting, I think, kind of the stinky outhouse kind of, you know, what you would maybe expect uh, kind of stereotypically uh, something like that to look and smell like, and they were, really surprised like oh this just looks like a regular bathroom and you know it doesn't smell and so i think the idea is we now have this sophistication to do some of these toilets some of these installations where it really doesn't Require much change in how people behave because, you know, to your point of convenience, people want convenience. They don't want to have to do all of these extra things when they're going to the bathroom. And I think we've reached a point now where that really isn't such an obstacle anymore and so buildings like this and they're you know improving all the time you know they're learning from their mistakes the bullet center learned a lot from its experience it passed on its lessons to other buildings and so you're going to see this kind of you know learning curve that that we're going to be able to get past and then you can have uh, basically systems ac- akin to what you would have now with septic system services that will come in basically empty your compost you know and take it to a facility that can where it can be uh, properly composted and then reused so i think you know we're we're at that point now where there's a lot of excitement there's a lot of research and it really is getting to the point where you know the toilets are going to look like toilets. They're going to not smell bad, and you're going to be able to reuse the waste for for better purposes. It's not going to just end up in a landfill.
0: And part of that research is is done in space with astronauts because they have uh, very limited resources. They have to reuse everything. And we've heard, I think even from back in Apollo, they reusing of urine and reclaiming the water from that. but, In your book, you also talk about not only reclaiming the water, but also making use of the bio waste for fuel for the for the for the spaceship.
1: That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It is possible for the astronauts to create their own fuel source through their their poop, Uh, because, again, if you go back to the biodigester uh, technology, that's taking um, our waste. And uh, creating biogas from it. Well, biogas, as we know, has methane in it has carbon dioxide, has some other things in it, but that can be converted to a fuel. And so already we're seeing um, in places around the world where the biogas created from wastewater treatment plants is being used to fuel buses. It has been used to fuel trains, other vehicles, and there's no reason why it couldn't be further refined as rocket fuel. So yeah, it's exciting.
0: And we're hoping that these kind of things will be able to scale up and, and compete successfully. And that's sort of like the critical thing, aside from dis- the disgust factor and the convenience factor, there's also the cost factor.
1: That's right. That's right. And I think the the uses for this are something that we're going to have to figure out. You know, we're talking about electrifying cars, for example. So maybe for cars, you know, going the electricity route is a better way to go. But for heavier equipment, for uh, ships, for example, for, for other things where maybe it's a little bit more difficult to electrify them you know, biogas, biofuels could be used, you know. So I think, you know, when we're talking about kind of renewable strategies, there's probably going to be a mix of different ones that we're going to have to apply. And of course it's going to be d- uh, different depending on where we are. But, but I think, yeah, this can, this can fit neatly into, you know, the, the larger goal of, you know, reducing our, our uh, carbon footprint and, and reducing greenhouse gas emissions.
0: And of course, we want to factor in the cost of waste disposal. You can't just compare energy source to energy source. You have to see, you know, what's the whole picture.
1: Right. And also, I mean, you're you're starting with a waste product, right? So so people were spending a lot of money to to cart it away and dump it into landfills. Right. And so if you're uh, avoiding that process, you're also gaining because you're, you're not having to pay someone to cart it away like that. So, so there's, there's a lot of benefits that I think people are, are understanding, not only what you're avoiding, but then all of the things that you're, you're gaining and all of the things that you're replacing. You know, so we didn't really talk about biochar, but another fuel source, uh, biochar can be akin to like charcoal briquettes. Uh, because charcoal briquettes can basically be made from any type of organic material, including trees, and so in in many places around the world, trees are being cut down to convert to fuel in the form of biochar, among you know, or 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 wood. But we can actually make biochar from other types of carbon, including uh, or organic waste, including poop. You know, so you can basically uh, convert poop into biochar briquettes that can be then used as fuel. And that as one of its many benefits, you are replacing the trees that you would otherwise cut down for that same purpose.
0: Right, and I just wanna mention in case that it's not clear already, the technology is here that we can disinfect the final product. So you can use this kind of briquette, you know, to on your, on your barbecue without having to worry about infecting your your steak.
1: That's that's true. Yes, yes, because because the process that you're using, uh, it's called pyrolysis, is heating it at a very high temperature uh, with a low amount of of oxygen. So we're talking temperatures of you know five six hundred degrees. So you're sterilizing everything. So there's yeah there's no uh, there's no threat of pathogens.
0: Right. So the bacteria has done its work and then you sterilize it. Yeah. <laughs> obviously, obviously that that order.
1: <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yep.
0: All right. Well, we have just a little bit of time left. I wonder if, if we could talk a little bit about the indigenous farmers of, of yore and, and maybe also presently, for instance, in Mesoamerica, you mentioned a MILPA system of sustainable permaculture, which I guess is the opposite of tempo culture. <laughs> Where where they knew what to plan together, and also when to let things go fallow, and how to let the system recharge in a sense.
1: Yeah, that's a fascinating system, and um, a part of this work has been done in the Amazon. And in the Amazon, there are these swaths of land. They're called uh, terra preta de indio, and it's uh, or Amazonian dark earths. And basically there are these areas where they're uh, unusually fertile, have a high amount of carbon in the soil. And there are a number of theories as to why that is so, but one of the ideas is that basically um, the indigenous people who live there would create these areas where they would have um, organic matter, their waste as well as fish, other uh, food waste, and then uh, bits of biochar uh, as well. And so basically what you created was this very uh, fertile soil amendment. And uh, they were able to grow these gardens and, and sustain themselves. And so you basically had this blossoming of these garden cities where they were able to grow things. Um, there's, there's several principles. Is, one is knowing which plants grow well together and then using every level of your understory as well as your canopy for shading plants and sort of understanding, you know, what one wants to grow where and how the shade is able to you know to help protect some of the plants when they're getting established. So it's basically this idea of working with the land, using the waste in a way that it is going to help with the soil fertility. And Through that, basically, the idea is that they were able to support much larger communities than, you know, scientists used to think was possible. So that is an exciting thing. I I visited a farm uh, in Tacoma. Washington, an Indigenous-owned farm, and uh, Melissa Meyer is the the farmer there, and she is teaching uh, Black and Indigenous farmers some of these traditional methods for working with the land instead of against it, and, and how do you increase the soil productivity but also kind of help heal the land. You know, so the idea is it's, this is regenerative agriculture where you're basically restoring uh, some of the, the trees and some of the other plants that may be used to grow there and understanding why and what value they have for, for helping make, make your land more productive.
0: So in closing uh, with the interview, I'd, I'd, I'd like to just quote from the end of your book, you write, we live on an impermanent planet one that is always rotting and recombining and reinventing itself. Every bit of life, including the human body, is on loan and everything goes back into the system for reuse when it's done. Death, decomposition, and even ugliness are necessary for beauty to bloom. It's a really beautiful summary of your book.
1: Thank you. Thank you you so much, Stuart, yeah.
0: So thank you so much for coming on to Delving In, Bryn Nelson, a microbiologist and also award-winning science journalist and the author of the recently published book, Flush, The Remarkable Science of an Unlikely Treasure. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I really, really enjoyed it. It was a pleasure.
0: I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.